Welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, a podcast dedicated to GDPR and all things privacy. This week, we're going to be talking about information security. Now, we all know that information security is key to a healthy and effective data protection regime. And this podcast is going to give us privacy professionals uh, a basic understanding of everything we need to know to be able to assess, discuss, and challenge the security practices in our organizations. Okay, now we've already put out a podcast on cyber insurance. So this one and the previous one on cyber insurance should make a nice pair if anyone's interested in this particular area. Now we're lucky to have in the studio today, Andy Larkham, who's a cybersecurity specialist. He's MD of ADL Consulting, uh, and he's come in to help us, or help me at least, understand how information security works in practice. So, Andy, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Not at all. Would you like to tell us a bit about yourself, uh, how you got into cybersecurity, what your business, ADL Consulting, does? Yeah, sure. So, um, for, thanks again for having me. Uh, I set up ADL a long time ago, actually, in, in a previous incarnation, ADL built websites and database systems. So, all things online. And I kind of fell in, out of love, really, with that industry. It was quite hard to keep up with everything. Um, and uh, just uh, you know, when you're trying to work with bigger projects, they expect more uh, in terms of company presence. And uh, I like to keep my overheads low. And it was a lifestyle business for me back then. So that made life very difficult to get into the larger market. And around that same time, a friend of mine who I'd uh, known for a number of years actually asked me to come and help him build his business in cybersecurity. So I, I went and worked with him for three years uh, as ops director. I helped get all the systems set up and in place um, and helped develop the content for the online platform that we built there. Um, and towards the end of my time now, I realized that the, the, the stuff I was really passionate about, the consultancy side and, and the training side, so actually going delivering training to staff, um, that, that was where I was spending most of my time. Um, and it, actually, it was creating a bit of a distraction for the business because you know, they're trying to sell and promote this online system and I'm going and delivering in-person consultancy. They're not, they're not the same thing. Um, and so I, I spoke to my boss then and said, well, look, I'm actually quite an expensive resource. It would make more sense if you brought me back in as a consultant to deliver that stuff and I'll go and do this for myself. So we part a company on mutually uh, happy terms. And, uh, and came back to running ADL Consulting, but moved it all towards cybersecurity, particularly with the GDPR focus. In the run-up to GDPR, kind of 18 months ahead of that, um, seeing that that seemed to be the stick that we needed to beat people with to get cybersecurity on the map within most companies. Um, GDPR is where I spent most of my time um, and, uh, and trying to understand, you know, get my head into what that meant for companies and how that coupled as well with the cybersecurity I already knew. Um, so coming back to working for myself, uh, a lot of the work was built around, therefore, GDPR and that opening the door to the cybersecurity stuff that we did alongside it. Understood. And what kind of what kind of clients do you have at the moment, typically? Oh, gosh, we work with a huge range of companies from marketing companies, research businesses, a lot of accountancy practices. Uh, so in financial services, we do a lot of work in that arena. But again, company sizes, we're doing anything from, in fact, I think my smallest client is eight staff, uh, tech, tech company, data-driven, an awful lot of data, through to you know, large accountancy firms and marketing firms with a few hundred staff. And so it, it's, it's a real range. It's part of the fun of what I do. Every company is different um, and uh, the challenges are, are different in every setting too. So it keeps it all fresh. Good. Okay. Well, that's interesting. So if we think about this present podcast, so... How would you go about explaining, so let's say I come to you, I'm, I work in a company, I'm DPO or someone in the privacy organisation, and I would say, tell me everything I need to know about security, information security, so I can have, you know, I'm part of the team that makes sure that the date, personal data is properly looked after, there's no breaches, it doesn't leak or whatever. How would you explain the cybersecurity world to me? Sure. Uh, that, that's tough in half an hour, but we'll, okay. <laughs> we'll give it a fair shot. Um, look, I think if, if I was going to leave you one thing that you must do, it's educate and train your staff on 
information security, how to handle data safely, how to process it securely. Um, because if you don't do that, you can put in whatever systems you like and guarantee someone's going to find a way around it because it's inconvenient. So we've got to understand why we're doing stuff if you expect me to change how I do stuff. Okay. In terms of the bigger picture, I think we can, we can look at what data do you actually hold? Uh, and it sounds kind of obvious because, you know, we, we all work in our businesses, right? But when, when it pertains to GDPR specifically, we're interested in the people data, not the everything else data. So we want to kind of narrow our search somewhat and say, well, let's look at where the people data is because that's the stuff we're really caring about. In this podcast, you know, if you're if you're the IT director, you care about all data, right? And mm. rightly so, we should protect all data. But from a GDPR perspective, it's specifically the people data we want to look at. Okay, uh, but you, you when you say um, so, I have this mental distinction between there's two kinds of security. There is the all the IT, all the hard stuff, and there's the soft stuff, which is people, right? And I've heard, and I've heard. So actually, tip, the typical, the most weaknesses in organisations are to do with the people, right? Those are the biggest vulnerabilities. Is 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 that kind of what you're saying when you say training education is the key? Or yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I saw a great cartoon. Uh, you may have seen it on LinkedIn. Uh, guy presenting to the board. And he said, "I've managed to, you know, condense down our, our two main threat vectors to two groups of people. There's everyone that doesn't work for us, and everyone that does." Yeah, we, we, we can put in place all kinds of brilliant security. I, fantastic. Look at these great systems we've put in place. Uh, but you just bypass my security by having the password password. Yeah, mm. so, so unless our staff understand that security is a real thing and something they really need to be aware of, and you know, given breach reporting under GDPR, something they need to tell us about if it goes wrong, if we don't fix that problem, you can put what systems you like in place if it's inconvenient to me, I'm going to bypass it. So we have to help our staff understand what we're doing first. Um, if we don't do that, we're in, in a tricky place. Okay. Okay. Understood. Okay. And and how would you go about doing that then? Let, let's say that's, we'll come, come back to the kind of the, the, the IT stuff later. Sure. But then let's say we're going to really educate our uh, staff about what it means uh, I think it's a good example. Uh, there was that thing in the papers recently about the guy who did loads of GDPR uh, uh, subject access requests for his fiance and got actually a lot of information from a lot of people. Yeah. And kind of, you're impressed by how helpful people are by their nature in responding. Though, you know, helpful nature is very good, but not necessarily the appropriate uh, way to respond to a subject access request. That's, that's a great example. So that's an example. So yeah. those are the kind of things you're talking about. Yeah, it? right. So, so you know, um, an easy example in the, taking that as a case in point, you, know, you receive a subject access request. It's, what, what's step one? Are you sure it's actually the person that's requesting the data that's requesting the data? You know, and, and again, if our staff don't know to check, why would they? You know, I have a whole bunch of kids, and if, if I don't explain to my kids how I expect them to behave, and then they misbehave, in my opinion, sort of unfair on me to discipline them when I didn't explain what was expected in the first place. So, so I, I, forgive me for you know, drawing a parallel between staff and children, but you know, we, we have to help staff understand security because you know, this cybersecurity is it's not something we've grown up with. It's something that we are trying to catch up with. Yeah, we all understand keys. We don't necessarily all understand passwords, but they're the same thing. We understand locks on doors and windows and office doors, particularly you know, filing cabinets. We get that, but we don't necessarily understand file permissions, but they're the same thing. So uh, if, we, if we're not helping our staff to, to keep up with this evolving world, um, then, then we're sort of leaving the back door open whilst we're trying to plug the gaps at the front. Okay, understood. So... To think, think about what you said. So, if you were, if you were going to give a sixty-minute overview, I'm not sure you do that right now, uh, to to the staff of Company A about what they need to know. What, how would you break the topics down in terms of what you'd lead them through? You need you, the staff, need to understand this, 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 and this. How, how would you organise that? Yeah. Okay. Um, that's a tricky question to answer. Partly because that will depend on the environment you're walking into. There are some generics that just work everywhere. We have to understand what we mean by the term cybersecurity, and most people don't. 
which makes it a really hard topic to engage with. You know, if we, if, uh, I, so I tend to explain it as uh, if you imagine the intersect of where people meet technology, meet data. You know, if I sit a laptop on a desk, it's not going to do anything stupid by itself. It needs my help. And I'm extremely capable of making it do really stupid stuff. Bring GDPR and data breach into the equation. I put some sensitive data onto that laptop. I can delete it really fast, creating unauthorized destruction of data. And now I've got a breach to report. So the laptop's not going to do that on its own. It's going to need my help. So we've got data and technology. Bring the person into the equation, scary place. And then we'll plug it into a network and let it do stupid stuff really fast. That's terrifying. So if we can fix this intersect, then we can greatly improve security. So helping people understand what do we mean by cybersecurity, what's involved, um, helping them identify risks. So things like, why do passwords matter? Um, Why is it important to configure things securely? Why don't we mess about with the anti-malware software on our computer, even if we feel like it's slowing it down sometimes? What's a firewall and what does that matter? what is this GDPR thing people keep talking about? Why does it make a difference to me? Um, and, and again, if we can take that, so I generally try to apply this to people in their personal lives rather than their company lives. Um, you, know, you in your company, you don't care. I mean, honestly, you just want to get on and do your job. Mm-hmm. You, you know, it doesn't really matter whether you're doing it securely or otherwise. In fact, honestly, this security stuff's a bit of a pain. But if I can help you understand at home you want to look at this. Ransomware is a really case in point, right? Easy example. So ransomware in your business is is really bad news, right? Bad news story. We don't want ransomware, but it's the company's problem, not my problem. But if I get ransomware at home and now all my family photos are encrypted, all my music, all my videos, all my movies, all my correspondence files to banks and companies and whatever, that's all been encrypted and I can't get it back without paying a ransom fee. Now I care. And if I can recognize how that could affect me at home, I'm going to be far more vigilant about that at home, which makes me far more vigilant at work too. So we've got to help people identify with this rather than just telling them what the company expects. And that's education, not training. Okay. One of the things you mentioned was uh, uh, access rights to various data. Hmm. And in some of the companies I've worked with, I mean, that's come up as an issue, and it clearly is an issue, particularly a company that's been around for a long while. There'll be uh, various people. Have, well, there was a good example, actually, about um, in some hospital in, um, in Portugal the other day where I think there were 50, 50 uh, doctors in the hospital, but 250 people, I can't remember the exact numbers, had doctor-level access permissions. Yes. And I'm sure that's true. And the, the older the company... Uh, the truer that will be. Yeah. What's the easiest, most effective way, uh, if you're a DPO or anybody trying to make that effective, getting into that and making sure that mm. the access controls are correctly set, monitored over time, mm-hmm. there's some kind of presu- presumably uh, uh, permission allowing people to to have permission, mm-hmm. and that gets and there's some kind of dashboard or equivalent lets people know what's going on. Mm. How is that handled? What's the best yeah. way to handle that? No, that's, that's a really awesome question. And in fact, I, was, um, I think it was in your first podcast, um, the, the guy, forgive me, I forget the guest's name. James Leeton Gray. Thank you. Um, it, he, he made the point, he said, I think we're at a position now where a lot of companies and boards are saying, well, GDPR, we did that, right? Mm. Uh, and have lost, or maybe perhaps never appreciated in the first place, or if they did, they've since lost sight, that compliance is never something you've achieved. It's always something you're chasing after. And the day you think you're compliant, by the next day, you're not anymore. You know, so it's this movable feast that's a constant challenge and a constant chase to, to try and achieve or maintain or whatever. Uh, so we can't just go, well, we did a thing and now we're done. You know, we, we have to continue our journey. So if we start this uh, looking at, you know, firstly, well, what data have you got? And I know it sounds like a kind of obvious question, but actually you know, when, when we stop and think about it, and as a, if you're a DPO, you should have. <laughs> if you, you've adopted a DPO role and you, you're getting into this, then you know, wow, that's a huge job you're going to have to do. Work out what data you've got. And once you've understood what data you've got, you need to start classifying it because until we understand the classification of the data, how do we know how to treat it? 
And again, educating staff, you know, well, that kind of paperwork, you can't just put that in a waste bin. That has to be shredded. You know, we, if, if we're not drawing distinctions... Can I, can I stop you there? Do, yeah, yeah. You, do Is that the... I've always thought that one of the... I understand the point oh, clearly that you, you need to map your data and know what data you've got. You need to have an understanding of different risks by different data types mm. and so on. Um, but would you then actually put in place a different security regime for different types of data? I've always understood, maybe it's me getting it wrong, that it's actually easier to have one information security regime across all your data because that kind of consistency is then easier to apply rather than have, you know, regime A, regime B and regime C. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a really good point. Um, and, and the true answer to that is it depends. And annoyingly, with most of GDPR, the answer is always it depends, right? <laughs> um, pragmatically, it would be much easier if we just everyone treats everything exactly the same way. And then there is no risk of, of someone misunderstanding or misinterpreting how we should deal with this particular type of data. Um, however, scale is a real thing. And if we scale to a you know, massive multinational and we say, well, look, every piece of data that we ever, or every piece of paper, sorry, that we ever use or write on or anything has to be secure shredded, well, there's a real cost implication to that. Um, you know, if actually we're putting you know, people's hand scribbled notes about what they ate for tea the night before or somebody's recipe, no, no, you can't put that in the waste bin. That's got to be recycled or shredded as well. You know, we, we can start getting into real cost incursion. Um, so, so it would be lovely if we can just apply, and certainly for smaller businesses, and that probably eeks into medium, yes, absolutely, we can say, well, we're just going to have one level of classification. It's all confidential. You don't mess it out with it. We, we treat it the same way. But when it comes to access rights, we, we have to introduce another angle on classification. You know, this particular kind of data can apply to these particular groups of people. Well, that, that's classification. So, so it's not just about how we dispose of or how we treat it. It's also who can access it. Mm, and coming understood. back to your point on you know, uh, this many doctors, but suddenly everybody's accessing doctor level information. You know, accumulated rights is a, is a major problem in information security. I started out life as the T-boy. I gradually worked my way up through the company and now I'm CEO. And every bit of rights I was ever given at any point in my career, I still have, which means you get my account you own the company. That's really bad. I don't need rights to the HR data anymore because I don't do that. I don't need rights to the company accounts anymore because I don't do that. I don't make payments anymore. That's the financial director's job. So don't give me bank rights. You know, I, I, I don't need access to the marketing information because I don't do marketing. You know, so, so take my rights away as I progress through different roles in the company. And how do we do that? How do we maintain that? Yeah, that's, that's genuinely hard. And, and the the data protection officer or information, you know, who, whoever who, owns whatever that, that role is, yeah, whatever title we want to put on that, they can't do it in isolation. They're going to need help. Uh, and your, your IT managers, your IT directors, they have to work together. We have to recognise that information security and data protection are not necessary. They're not the same thing. They are key distinct roles that sometimes will be diametrically opposed to each other. But if they can work together and recognise that sometimes we're not going to be on the same team, but most of the time we really should be, uh, let, let's work together, we can put systems in place to help make sure that we're reviewing rights of access and things like that to ensure that people have the right access to the right things and we don't leave things open. So, okay, so if you're the DPO, and you, or let's say you just arrive as a DPO for sake of argument in a company that's been around for a while, one of the things you probably want to reassure yourself is apart from the general level of education, that would be one thing. You want to have a feel for sure. how, 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 how well-educated have people been about this area. Mm. It's this access rights thing. So you'd want to have a look in and, and say, well, have we got 50, have we got 200 doctor accesses for 50 doctors or what the equivalent is? Mm. Assume you then get that tidied up so it makes it rational. You then presumably, this is your point, journeys are not a, a, an arrival state, it's a journey. You then need to be, that, that, that needs to be reviewed every, I don't know, quarter, six months, yearly, something periodically anyway. Yes. And presumably someone needs to sign off for each, I'm running HR, I will therefore sign off that these people have got the right permissions. Is that the way it works? And you, that sign off escalates up through the business. Sure. I mean, look, 
exactly how is going to yeah. depend on the company you're working in and what you've already got in place. But but things you, you perhaps want to be considering are you know, when when people change roles, what procedures do we have in place to make sure we're cleaning up behind them? You know, they they are going into this role which requires these rights and privileges. But have we removed the previous one? I mean, let's make it physical because everyone gets physical, right? So, so this person was head of this department, so they had keys to get into that department. Understandably, swipe card, physical key, whichever you like. They now don't run that department anymore. They run this department over here. Well, did anyone take the previous key off or did anyone update the swipe card so it doesn't go in that side anymore and goes over here? I, I get you. I've seen that 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 happens or should happen in most companies when someone exits a business. Right. Doesn't happen so much when they change role in the business. Uh, that is exactly. an area of weakness. That's yeah. So, so looking at you know change of roles, well, that's going to almost certainly involve some kind of change of permissions. Um, yeah. How are we managing permissions to to folders, files, physical things? Um, it is perhaps the, the interesting starting point, and particularly you know as a DPO working with IT and infosec guys is look, can you explain to me how we're making sure that the right people have the right access? Um, you know, group policies are lovely, assuming the groups have the right people in. What's the procedure for making yeah. sure that's kept up to date? It's a gap between can we, the policy and the real world is always right, a worry. Right. And, and you know, can, can we implement that down through line management? Can we implement it through HR department? What's the request procedures in place to make sure that these things are followed through? So as you say, exit procedure, well, that's great. We locked everyone out when they left. What about you moved? That internal stuff needs to happen too. Okay, so what are the, okay? That's in, that's interesting. What are the, this? I put this on the soft side of things rather than what other what other things would you put on the soft side of things that would need to be looked at? We got people need to understand the nature of kind of passwords and how that works, ransomware, why we are doing all this, and we we talked before the podcast listeners just so you know about some of this stuff and and the, and the reasoning that the. The why is very important because you can't, tr- I mean, the whole nature of breaches and this kind of thing is they keep occurring in new forms because people are designing that they should occur in new forms. Mm. So people understand the why each time. So so let's say we've got that sorted. We've got access rights fixed. Are there other areas which we should be on the soft side of things which are come, come to mind that you would be, when you walk into a company with your professional hat on, you start looking at? Yeah, sure. Okay, so I suppose <laughs> we can go very practical, right? Because uh, again, GDPR, lots of data stuff, uh, and nowadays we tend to think digital. You know, we, we tend to go, well, okay, data—that that's what I've got on my computer or my hard drive. Yes, it is, but it's also physical, uh, and we need to consider physical stuff as part of what we do. So, you know, if I'm brought into a new company to look at this stuff, the the first thing we do is, well. What can I see from outside? You know, can, can I overlook somebody's screen? In fact, I went to a company just the other day, last week actually, and, uh, and from the door where I rang the bell, I could look through the window at somebody's screens because they're back to the window and two nice big monitors set big enough resolution that I could actually read what was on the screen from outside. You know, overlook, shoulder surfing's a real thing. Uh, and we, we all get it with our pin codes when we're at cash point, but mm-hmm. we think about where we're sat with our computers and not just to the outside world, but also think internally. You know, if you're, you're in an HR role, for example, and sometimes you're going through staff disciplinary stuff, well, you don't want random punters walking behind you reading what's on your screen. Other employees from the company going, oh, I didn't know Jeff was in trouble. Yeah. You know, we've got to think practically. Once I'm into the building, where can I go? You know, uh, once I'm inside, can I just let myself into places? You'd be amazed how far you can get if you just be a little bit confident. You know, what, what can I see standing at the front? I remember one company I went into, um, they had a reception desk and a kind of waiting area, but th- they also worked into the evening. So they had an out of hours thing and the front doors get locked after you know, usual office hours, but you can go and ring a bell on the front door or if you need disabled access, you can go and ring around the side. And if you ring around the side, the person at the reception has to leave the desk, go around the side to let open that access. Well, you've got anyone waiting in the lobby area, they can help themselves to whatever's available on the reception desk, but also the office behind the reception desk had no lock on it and was left open. So you've just expected, and all of the admin records were sat in that office. So I'm walking and help myself. Physical, 
but it wouldn't be hard to pick up a bunch of files and walk back out again before anyone noticed. So, so we have to think about the physical stuff too. What can I see? Where can I get to? Um, and then uh, what, yeah, what, what kind of information are you giving away about yourself before I even arrive at the company? So thinking about your company website, do we give too much information about our team away? Um, you know, we've got employee information. Well, some of them, if you're directors, that's in the public domain anyway. Once you're below director level, do, do we need to give that information away? Now, for some companies, it's a size thing. They want to prove they're a certain size. But did, did, did your staff give permission for you to put that on the website? Were they okay with that? Did you give them a choice? Um, that, yeah, interesting. But from a, from a pure security perspective, would you think that uh, directors in public domain understood, but let's say it's a net level down, if they're, you know, our team includes these people, do you think that, say, uh, security exposure in the sense that someone can then ring up and say, I know Joe Bloggs, director of marketing, he said I should come around and, and visit him and they can get in that way? Is that, would that be your, your concern? Yeah. Okay. So, so one of the things GDPR did was make us think slightly differently about our data. And that, that's a really good thing because one of the, um, I think, most misunderstood things in, in society today is the value of your data. And social engineering is this massive field of all kinds of scariness. <laughs> and, and, and it's all about, well, if I, once I know something about you, what can I do with that? Um, and once I know that bit, where can I go? And we talk about uh, a layered attack. In fact, there was a, a great story about a guy called Kane Gamble, young lad, um, 15 years old, I think, who managed to hack the CIA directors. Um, uh, director, and he, and he did it by um, essentially vishing his way through a, a bunch of gatekeepers. So he started with his information, uh, his uh, internet s- service provider, his ISP, and got a bit of information out of that, which enabled him to access other accounts, and then other accounts, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. To his redirecting phone calls to uh, you know, the Palestinians or something, it, mm. it was crazy stuff. But all because he knew it, a bit of information, which allowed him to gain greater access. So the more information that's available about you, the greater risk that presents to you. That's what GDPR came to solve was, well, hang on a minute, um, my data presents a risk to me if it's misused or abused or leaked. Why are companies now obliged to make sure they're looking after data properly and securing it properly? Well, because if you don't, you present a risk to me. You've put me at unnecessary risk. So the more information that's out there on me, the greater risk I'm at. If you, if my company is putting my details on the website, well, how else would somebody find out that I work for that company? Now we can talk about LinkedIn and stuff like that, but I chose to put the LinkedIn information in, not my company. Okay, that's okay. I think that's very interesting. So if we think of a layered attack, um, this is a social engineering. Think of social engineering, which is another kind of soft entry route, right? It's, right happening by means of a layered attack and each layered attack is minor in itself but over time builds up as you suggest and this comes back to your point how do you train employees to detect the and let's say each layered attack is made up of 20 different ones okay to get to the point mm-hmm. how they how do they detect that each of the 20 is part of uh, an attack to be blunt right um yeah, <laughs> that's really well. You can't it, to to put a, in in a nutshell. There's, um, I think it was the uh, ex-director of the FBI who said there are two types of company in the world: those who've been hacked and those who are going to be. Um, and in Infosec, it's a classic line of: it's not a case of when you hacked; it's a case of when you find out mm-hmm. that you've been hacked. You know, um, and and really, if if I am, uh, if I'm. If I'm good at what I do as a, as a hacker, as a fraudster, you'll never find me. Um, and I'm going to get in one way or another. So this is why we talk about layers of security. You know, you don't fix security with one big switch. <laughs> you know, yesterday, not so secure. Today, now we are. Hooray. Um, you know, you, we have to apply security in layers. And each layer is just another layer of frustration for me as a hacker trying to get into a business. So if I've got to do 20 layers of, of attacks before I manage to get to the stuff that I'm really interested in, how much do, do I really care 
you know, are you really worth my time and effort and energy? And it's one of the things that Cyber Essentials came to try and solve was, you know, if you're going to get hacked, at least make it slightly difficult for the hackers to get in. And, you know, if you're going to be compromised, make them work for it. What Cyber Essentials, was that a British government thing? Yes, thank you for asking. No. So, so that was a poor assumption on my part. So Cyber Essentials was, uh, is the government scheme. They introduced it back end of 2014. And it was their solution to the kind of um, grandiose statement by the politicians of, we want the UK to be a safe place to do business online. Well, what does that actually mean? Uh, and how do we help companies who, who really don't, they don't have the expertise, they don't have the know-how, they don't have the in-house staff. How do we help them be more secure? So Cyber Essentials was a set of, they call them technical controls. Uh, we can call them stuff you should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, just really practical things like making sure your passwords are not default passwords and make sure everybody's changed the default password and uh, you know, make sure that if we're going to send out a new computer, we've done something at least to make sure it's secured. Um, make sure the patches are applied. Make sure we've got anti-malware software. Do we understand our firewall rules? So, so you know, good practical things. And if you believe their statistics, they reckon it, it reduces your risk from internet-based threats by up to 70 to 80%. Well, that's quite a big reduction. And, and you know, we, you've probably heard the term script kiddies. Right? I, I would consider myself a script kiddie. I am someone who knows enough to do some damage, but not really enough to get away with it or really know um, how to do sophisticated hacking. Right? So I can download tools off the internet and play with them. Every kid can. And certainly the larger companies where they're monitoring security incidents will tell you that the, the number of security incidents maps almost absolutely school holidays. So, you know, we, we, we're quiet till we get to Easter half term and, or you know, East, uh, the half term and then Easter break and then summer and you know, back into October half term break and then Christmas, it's all gone mental again. And in between times when the kids are in school, it all goes quiet or at least reduces dramatically. It's because kids are playing with tools they've downloaded off the internet and they're just having a pop. So let's protect ourselves from the kids who are having a pop so that if somebody really wants to get in, they're going to have to work at it. Okay, that's... Triggered number thoughts. I know that uh, pen testing, penetration testing, is something that, that companies organise on their systems to see how resilient, robust they are. Mm-hmm. Do people do pen testing? This is back to the physical point. On can I get past the receptionist? Does anyone do that? Because that seems yes. Yeah. yeah, physical pen testing is a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> because but, that is probably quite difficult for. Like, I mean, imagine if you're on the reception and that kind of stuff. You're you're trained to be helpful. But here you've got to be kind of uh, helpful but unhelpful and know when to be unhelpful and stand your ground against quite, some quite pushy people, I presume. Yeah. No, so, so you just triggered a thing in my head, right? Uh, and again, it came out of one of your earlier podcasts. Um, historically, I think, uh, particularly data protection people and, and to an extent IT infosec people as well, we've had this um, background of we're, we're actually really difficult people. You know, we're annoying because we stop stuff. Um, and instead, we need to be looking at data protection and infosec as enablers rather than you know, barrier makers. Um, you, know, it, it, you can't do that for these reasons, but you could do this. And it, we often miss the you could do bit because we're too busy fighting the can't. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we would do ourselves a tremendous favour, both on the infosec side and the data protection side, to start looking at, look, I, I, I hear what you want, you can't do that, but we could do these things um, rather than just being no men mm-hmm. or women. Um, so, you know, uh, yeah, so, so physical pen testing, yes, is a lot of fun. And as you say, it's part of the, the no thing there was um, you know, we, we uh, <laughs> believe it or not, we're actually pre-wired to be helpful. Uh, and, and I know for some of you listening, you can think of plenty of people that you would not believe that to be true of. Um, but, but as you know, people are designed to be helpful, we, we, we will generally help out where we can. Um, and particularly British people, we are unhelpfully polite. You know, we don't like saying no, um, uh, but we've got to get better at it from a data protection and information security perspective. We have to be better at saying, we can do that politely. Uh, it's, it's great that you're here. However, I'm going to have to ask you to wait. No, you can't just go in. <laughs> Sit tight. I'm very sorry. The person you came to see today isn't in. Yes, I, I understand that might be tremendously frustrating for you. And I'm really sorry for your wasted trip. That's not my fault. Um, 
I'm sure they'll be in touch to rearrange. So I know a guy actually who did a physical pen test on a huge multinational company and uh, turned up and pretended to be from the local council. He'd made up a letterhead and everything, um, came to inspect lighting. But the guy he was had, you know, saying he was here to meet, he'd done his research and knew the guy was going to be away on holiday. So he turned up when the guy's on holiday, made a big fuss and said, well, if you don't let me in, I'm going to shut you down because you know, I have to do this inspection. So they took him around the whole campus, <laughs> showed him all kinds of stuff he wasn't supposed to see. Um, so so you know, again, because we're polite. So we have to help staff say, look, it's all right to be difficult, actually, uh, where you believe someone's doing something they shouldn't. Okay. And and then, and talks about layers of data. If you're, and let's talk a bit about the, the, the physical side of it, by which I mean the IT side, not the not the soft physical, not the premises physical. Mm -hmm. um, I remember reading somewhere that, of course, the most efficient systems are kind of segregated systems where, you know, bits are are protected from each other. Yes. Effectively. Yeah. Okay. Which is great in terms of uh, protection, to your point. The hacker can only get to one bit and then he's got to do all the work in to get the next bit and the next bit and the next bit. Mm. Uh, but the problem is it makes... Um, uh, much more expensive to, I don't know, roll out updates or do you know, stuff across the, the patch of the system as a whole. So what choices are, what, what are the kind of main design constraints or choices or, I don't know, uh, favourite topographies of a network system design at the moment that InfoSec people, when they're designing systems from scratch, will be thinking about? Yeah, I, I, and before I answer that, I, I think it's really important to recognise that in, in the jobs that we do, pragmatism must apply. And this is a, this is a risk game, right? So um, I, I, I've been into so many companies where they're spending a fortune, either time, money or both, uh, doing stuff that actually is going to make very little difference. We've got to do, perhaps as an industry as a whole, a better job of working out where the quick wins are and you know, shutting the doors on the obvious errors rather than spending a lot of time, effort and energy in the wrong areas. And segregation of duties is, is a really good thing to look at. Right? In fact, uh, it's one of the things within ISO 27001, you know, making sure that um, people have rights and responsibilities to the bit they need to have rights and responsibilities for, and we don't give people access to anything and everything. And you can apply that same metric to topology as well. Uh, in fact, it's a, a great example is the Target data breach. Um, you may be familiar with uh, Target in the US. I think they're a bit like uh, B&Q over here. Yeah, big retailer. Um, yeah, massive. And uh, they, they were subject to a spear phishing attack. Uh, I think they stopped counting at 67 million credit card numbers or something that were breached. It was a huge, huge hack. Um, and and what they, they, they'd made the perimeter defences very secure, really strong, right? But um, fraudsters are, are, are smart, lazy. Yeah, we're, we're all lazy, really, is why we all tend to we're sit helpful there. helpful and lazy at the same time. Yeah, so you know, how many times have you sat watching something on TV, no idea what it really is because you couldn't find the remote to change the channel? You know, we, we are inherently lazy, and, and so we'll find the easiest way to do something. For, for, for the fraudsters, in this case, hacking target was tremendously hard work, so they looked for an easier route. And they identified that the uh, company that looked after their HVAC systems, so their heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems, um, were, were much smaller supplier. And it's an interesting study in supply chain security as well. Um, so they sent a spear phishing email to the HVAC company. One of the employees opened it up, installed malware on his software, so um, on his laptop. And he took that same laptop into Target one day and plugged into the HVAC system. And of course, these are all networked. And once they plugged into that network, there was no segregation across the entire internal network within Target. So once they're into HVAC, they were into everything. And a simple firewall between HVAC and other would have fixed that problem. So it's a really good idea. In fact, I was with a company just the other day where we were looking at once you were into their core network, you, had, you could go anywhere. Uh, there was nothing separating off or firewalling off the different parts of the network. So certainly looking at which bits of, internally, which bits do what jobs and who needs access to where, and can we segregate those to improve our security internally? Because if I get ransomware in this bit of the company, it's, it's restricted at least to that bit, not everywhere. Okay, that's it. I've never, okay. 
And, and I think the point about vendor security is interesting. That never that would never occur to me. So there's a point about making sure that vend well, two either vendors don't access your network. So the, the point never arises, which is probably slightly, possibly unlikely uh, to be the case. Or making sure that they are sufficiently well vetted that they're operating the same kind of standards as you are. Yeah, right. And, and again, it's part of what Cyber Essentials was introduced to achieve. Um, how do we benchmark, for want of a better term, how do we benchmark anyone's security? Uh, and it was for bigger companies, I say 27,001 is kind of the gold standard. Interestingly, though, you know, it, it's not a guarantee of information security and shouldn't be seen as it. it, it, it you've still got due diligence to interrogate that standard um, to make sure that well, whilst you've got the badge, how have you actually implemented stuff? I want to come and check um, would be really smart move. Um, but for smaller businesses, 27,001 is a huge undertaking and probably not something they want to do because uh, the cost of getting it, but also maintaining it is hard uh, and, and expensive. So prohibitive perhaps. Um, and, and so Cyber Essentials came in as a, well, at least do something. Uh, here's some stuff that you can genuinely do that anyone can do. And again, Cyber Essentials is self-assessed. So you download the assessment pack, you answer the questions, and if you want the badge, send it off to an auditor and pay the money. It should be about 300, 350 pounds, something like that. Okay. But now at least I can look at my supply chain and go, well, I know we are reasonably safe and secure, and I know I'm doing everything I know how to protect the data that I'm holding, but I'm giving some of it to you. What guarantees do you give me that you're going to do the same job I'm doing, or that you're going to apply the same diligence to looking after the data as I have? And again, Cyber Essentials was an effort to try and achieve that. I understood, but there's two there's two different things, isn't there? Or at least I say two different things. So let's say you've got uh, you're the controller of say go GDPR talk, and yep. you've outsourced some work to the processor. They've got your data, you've passed it over to them to do whatever the work is. Um, therefore, you've got the normal Article Twenty Eight stuff applies, and you've got to make sure they have to make sure their stuff is secure, and you have to you have to make sure that their stuff is secure. But that that's that data. But there's I was thinking more about the the leakage of not in relation to the data you've, you've outsourced to the vendor, but the leakage of risk from the vendor being part of effectively part of your operations, you know, whether connected technically to your network or not. There is mm. a back to this 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 the target example. There is a risk of of, le- of leakage of vulnerability from the supplier into the into the buyer. Effectively, if you're not if you're not careful. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And, and again, this comes down to risk assessment. So one of the things Cyber Essentials is tremendously weak at. It doesn't do risk. It just looks at practical stuff you do. Right. Um, ISO twenty seven thousand one is all about risk assessing your information security. So you know, uh, case in point, if I'm going to give you my data or if I'm going to use you as a supplier, what happens if you're not around anymore? How does that affect my business? And you know, risk assessing on, on all levels of business, there comes a, a tipping point in terms of size and scale where that genuine you know, becomes a, a major issue. If, if, uh, so um, Amazon Web Services, for example, AWS or Azure, you know, uh, we host all our systems in AWS. Great. Well, what happens if there's some kind of outage in AWS or the data center that you're using? You know, have, you, have you got redundancy across multiple sites? Have you got a failover system? Have you got multiple endpoints to, to, to protect yourself and keep your resilience? No. Well, what happens if that goes down then? Well, it's Amazon. It won't go down. Well, Amazon might not go down, but the bit of Amazon you're using might. And what will that mean for the business? You're an e-commerce site. Why are you just on one availability zone? Surely you should be on multiple because if your site goes down, you stop earning money. Yeah, so so looking at the resilience, is, yeah, risk assessing resilience is. Important. But that's that. Uh, I think that's quite easy to buy from Amazon or Azure or Google or any of them. You can buy you know multiple site resilience. Can't you? That's a kind of yeah. Uh, I, I come on. Let me just ask a question about 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 those kind of um, cloud cloud providers and then come back to ISO 27000 again. So, okay, so if you're with AWS or you're with Azure or you're with Google, at least you know that bit is going to be ultra secure to the extent it can be in terms of network topology and all that. I'm saying this and you can criticize and you can say, no, Mark, you got it all wrong. But let me just go on the thought. So we assume that bit is kind of uh, industry leading standard. Okay. But then there's, your bit of the business, which plugs into the AWS or plug, plugs into Google, plugs into to Azure, how, it, how, do, how can you make sure you're, you're not the weak 
part of that equation. Hmm. No, that, thank you. That was the bit I was talking okay. about, uh, about. Yeah, with most systems, I, and I, you know, I have to use that term advisedly. Um, yeah, with, with most cloud-based systems, uh, the security risk tends not to be the cloud-based system. It tends to be how we use them. Um, and again, I, I could make the most phenomenally secure cloud-based system. You know, the hosting setup is amazing. The, the, the topology is rock solid. The, 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 you know, all of my security settings around it are, are you know, military grade. It's, it's outstanding. Um, and, and then your sign-in to my system uses the username admin and the password admin. Well, you just bypassed all of my hard work on securing your system for you by inherently unsafe login protocols. So, you know, how safe and secure are Amazon or Google or um, Azure? Well, tremendously, actually, if they've been configured correctly. And if they haven't, that's not AWS or, or Azure or Google's fault. That's whoever configured them incorrectly that's at fault. So again, in terms of supplier risk, well, we brought in this company to set up our AWS configuration. They did it badly. And do you mean, sorry to interrupt, do you mean configuration in the way, in, well, in the way I would understand it with how you set up the parameters in your computer system? Or do you mean the way that your on-premise system, part of it, including the, the, the user permissions, user access, that kind of stuff, interacts with the rest of the stuff in the cloud? Is it? Yeah, po- possibly both. Okay, so so most setup, okay, take normal company setup where we're going to move a bunch of our on-premise, system, uh, on-premise systems into Azure or AWS. Uh, one of the first things you'll do is set up a VPC, virtual private cloud. Um, and then within that virtual private cloud, you start putting resource, so servers, databases, file storage, whatever. Um, and it's how we set that up and how we configure that VPC and the resources within it that introduces risk to us. So if I don't, for example, configure sensible firewall rules for how to access resources within that VPC, I'm leaving a door open. If I expose resources internally, and this is where a lot of people are falling down with cloud systems, if I've exposed a resource internally that shouldn't have been exposed to the outside world, it should have only been available within my own virtual private cloud, well, that's my configuration of AWS, not AWS that's exposing it on my behalf. Does that make sense? Yeah, understood. So, so how we configure it uh, and the access and the security around that and the user creation and so on, that's one aspect, but then also how we connect to it. Um, uh, so again, poor usernames and passwords to access in the first place, well, that would be a bit of a faux pas on our part. Okay, and just... Just coming back to the ISO 27000 stuff. Now, I'm always a bit of a cynic about this kind of stuff. And I always think that anything which involves large amounts of paper and large amounts of uh, process and due diligence is actually often results in something which is pretty substandard. Actually, so, so what I'm saying very bluntly is I've always struck me that ISO 27000 is actually ticking the box at the size with very little substance underneath it. So what's your view on that? Yeah, I, um, <laughs> on the one hand, I agree. And I should be very careful about saying that because it's one of the things that I spend most of my time doing is 27,001 implementation. Um, done as a tick box exercise, it is largely pointless, um, waste of money, time, effort, resource. You know, don't bother um, other than because you need the badge. So, hey, you know, let's get the badge and we can start bidding on these tenders. Uh, tends to be the driver for a lot of companies. The problem with that is that the main, the ongoing maintenance is a real pain. Um, you know, so so you, I, I, I spoke to a company a little while back who um, they, 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 they'd done just that. They basically bought a company in who'd gone, Bleh, there you go, there's all the policies and procedures and everything you're going to need uh, off the shelf package that'll get you through the audit. And sure enough, it got them through the audit because unfortunately, a lot of auditors aren't information security people. They are standards people. So they know how to read what is required and tick the boxes because they've seen the evidence presented, not whether or not that evidence actually makes sense for the company they're sitting in, right? So um, from that perspective, it'll, it'll get through. The problem they had was 12 months later when they came to a surveillance audit, they failed because they hadn't done a bunch of stuff that ISO requires. 
and for them that was quite a big deal right so um off the shelf packages I, I would always be extremely wary of that because this largely pointless and meaningless however done right ISO 27001 is a phenomenal tool for reducing risk to the business. Uh, one of the companies I'm working with uh, at the moment, they um, a fantastic company, uh, quite a large company, um, and they, 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 their systems are, from from the word go really walking around just really impressed with how they've implemented everything. You know, great security, great company, um, aware staff. You know, they've done everything right. And as we're going through the risk assessment side of the uh, large chunk of what ISO 27001 is about, uh, we started uncovering things where you know, the, the IT director who was working with was going, oh, do you know what? I'd never thought of that. I was like, excellent. We found a something. And, and as a, you know, some, a consultant going in, that's always a little bit rewarding because you go, thank goodness I found something that made it worth paying me the money for being here. Um, but, you know, we, we found a few things, not loads, but a few things. It was like, oh, great. Do you know what? If we hadn't spotted that and something had gone wrong, that would have been really serious for us as a business. So I'm so glad we spotted it. Mm. That's what ISO should be, is not just a tick box exercise, but an actual useful tool within the business, helping you to understand, identify and manage risk in an efficient and effective way. And that probably works fine for big companies because it's such a heavyweight tool. If you're immediate, if you're below that level, medium or small, then is there an equivalent? Do, do you, should you be using cyber essentials or something else? Or is there, is there a kind of uh, ISO 27,000 light for... for Okay, so given this is a GDPR thing, right? Well, um, for the DPOs who are listening to this, um, they may all be kicking off going, oh, it's information security stuff. And, and you know, I, I, lots of uh, data protection people particularly tend to harp on about the fact that the, the actual requirements for securing and protecting data from an infosec perspective are quite small within GDPR. Um, but it's there. You have to look after the data you hold. You have to make sure you're securing and protecting it properly and adequately, right? So my argument would be, well, if you haven't done what the government would argue is the essentials for cybersecurity, and we'll call it cyber essentials because that's a convenient title, then it's going to be a difficult argument to say that you have put in place sensible protection measures to look after the data you're holding. You, know, you didn't do the essentials. How would you argue that you're adequately protecting the data that you're holding? So, so I would argue every company should do cyber essentials. Even if you don't get the badge, you know, because it's self-assessed, download the questionnaire, work your way through the questionnaire, and make sure you've done all the things that it asks for. Keep a log of that somewhere so that if anyone comes and asks you, you can say, well, yeah, we've been through everything and we, we did everything that was required. If you want to get the badge too, fine, send it off and get the badge. But do the essentials. Okay, I'll put the link on the show notes, uh, everyone who's listening, so you can track it down. Okay, mm. and is there a Cyber Essentials website with frequently asked questions? Or is there a Cyber Essentials community? Um, there is, unfortunately, in this space, lots of people are selling you something. All right, so um, the link I'll give you is to a company I, I, I found a sort of the most pure of what was originally intended um, by Cyber Essentials. There's lots of others that have embellished somewhat and ramped the price up with it and made it quite hard and confusing for people uh, where the whole goal was anyone in any business should be able to do this. Right? So, uh, uh, yeah, I'll make sure that link's available. Um, in terms of is there a next level up after that, and not really. I mean, there's Cyber Essentials Plus, but it's... Um, Part of the requirements in Cyber Essentials is making sure you've got sensible firewalls, and then Cyber Essentials Plus is going to pen test your firewalls. Okay, mm. uh, if, you, if they're doing it right, they should come and do an internal vulnerability scan at least to see whether we've missed any patches or security things internally. Um, but from the outside poking in, well, if I've set my firewall rules up like I'm supposed to under Cyber Essentials, then you're not going to find anything. So why am I doing that? I don't know. Um, but after that, really, your next best is 27,001. And and it, it doesn't have to be massive. Um, for big companies, it's a huge old piece of work. For smaller businesses, it's not actually. Um, so the smallest company I've put 27,001 in was about 30 staff. Um, so not a massive company. Okay, okay, well, okay. And did they get the certificate? Yes. Okay, and how many days work was that? So let's say a 30-person company, 
certificated to 27,000. Yep. 100 days of work to get that up and up. So and- I went in one day a month for about nine months and they did work internally too. Um, so f- f- nine days of consultant time, probably maybe the same and a little bit more internally, but not loads. Um, and again, because they were a small company, they could poke some of that out to their IT company, outsourced IT providers and say, well, how are we doing this? Um, and get the information back that way. So he, he, that's interesting. I've never heard it done so lightly. And I don't make that in a pre, I don't mean that in a prejudicial way. No, no. Or maybe the ways I've never heard it done so intelligently with a better way of putting it. Well, again, pragmatism applies. You know, part, part of ISO 27001 is working out what your scope is and what the statement of applicability looks like. So which bits of this standard actually apply to our business? If, if, that, if we don't, so um, uh, if, if you're developing software, there's a whole bunch of requirements in 27001 about how you look after your software and your code base and who's got access to it and so on. If you're not, well, that bit doesn't apply then. So mm. let's not waste any time looking at that. So working out which bits actually apply and then how you're going to apply those controls, that's the fun bit. Um, and again, do that pragmatically. And, and one of the kind of trip-ups with, with ISO, the whole point is continual improvement. You know, it's not a, we did it, there we go, we're done. Um, and and it, it, it's, you'll get plenty of companies who, who do the risk assessment, they'll create the risk treatment plan, they'll go ahead and do a load of remedies. And, and when they think they're all, be- right, we're, all, we're done, we're good, we're nice and safe and secure, now let's get an auditor in. And the auditor looks around and goes, well, this is great, guys, but what are you planning to do over the next three years? Well, nothing, we did it all. Well, I need to see continual improvement. Yeah. What are you going to improve? we'll have to come up with something yeah. <laughs> so so you, you know it, there's a there's an interesting question around when should you bring the auditor in and the answer is well you need to know what risks you've got uh, you need to have done an internal audit to you know, identify where you've got problems and what work you're going to be doing and you need to put a plan in place as to how you're going to continue that and how you're going to measure your improvement and then get an auditor in don't do it all first yeah okay and if I'm a DPO, what kind of reports should I, buy, should I be seeing? Presumably, if you've got standard, I don't know, security software in there, it's producing attacks on uh, reports on number of attacks, unidentified this, unidentified that. Are those a stand something that the CISO would be looking at on a regular basis? Is, is that is that the way it works? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, fr- from a data protection perspective, um, number of let's say the number of port scans that our external IP address is getting. Well, that's kind of interesting if you're a, you know, an InfoSec guy because you go, oh, look at all the people trying to get in. I hope none of them did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you're a data protection person, you're looking at it going, well, I don't really care. Did, did they get in? No. Well, then my data is safe, right? What I'm more interested in is, did anyone click on a phishing email? Um, did, did, did anyone uh, get a, a phishing call? Uh, did anyone send an email to the wrong person? Um, yeah, did, did, did we post some post to the wrong place? Did, did we forget to encrypt something that we should have encrypted when we emailed it? Yeah, that, those kind of things are much more because I'm in, I'm protecting the data, not the infosec systems. That's that's the information security person's job. That's the CISO guy. But if you're going to have a discussion with them about what the and 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 what the appropriate level of cover, which is matching risk and matching budget, you mm-hmm. need to have a view of of some of that stuff to have an intelligent discussion with them. Mm. Would you not say, would you not think that if you're the DPO and you want to have an intelligent discussion with the CISO about where we should, where our risks are, right. how we should spend the money, where the budget should be spent, you need right. a view of what, what areas are being attacked the most. Even if even nothing's penetrated, you might want to know, well, actually, I can see this is an area exposure because... You know, the North Koreans have been at this port again, for example. Right, right. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, if we don't start with risk first, we're, 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 we're going to be too expensive and too, compl- yes. too complicated. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we tend to go, oh, that's a very expensive solution. In fact, I working with a company a little while ago who, um, you know, they, they were uh, looking at a, a, a mails, e- email solution. And uh, they looked at the, the, the headline figure, and it was quite expensive. And uh, they said, oh, that's, that's a bit expensive. So, well, it, it is, but it's a third of what you've lost of phishing scams already this year, and we're only nine months in. So 
Is it expensive actually compared to the alternative? And and the annoying thing about risk, it's like insurance. You know, if, if insurance isn't mandated, it's really expensive. You know, why would I have car insurance if I didn't have to have it? I I you know I, I don't crash my car. I don't drive stupidly. Um, and and you know, until you have to make a claim, insurance is expensive. Once you make a claim, it feels tremendously cheap all of a sudden. Right. So so understanding what's our risk and where do we perceive that really coming from? Well. Some of that is our own internal diligence and understanding what we have and what we hold and where we perceive our risks to be. And some of it is the evidence presented, which would be things like, well, how many phishing emails, how, how many port scans, how many targeted DDoS are those, attacks. Are those tracked automatically? Are those kind of easy to produce reports anyone can get access to because we have a machine that produces them? Or there's some things that some poor person in account has to add up? Or have you reported in and then headed up? Yeah, that, uh, and again, annoyingly, it depends um, on what systems you've got in place. You know, there will be some, so you know, some firewalls will report on number of things that happened. Some I, clever, you can honeypots will tell you how many people have come in to try and hack that. Um, it, phishing emails, they're kind of hard to spot unless you know how many got rejected because your mail filter was already getting rid of them. You know, we had 30,000 phishing emails sent to us this month and we got rid of 30,000 of them. Well, that's cool. How many got through? What do you mean got through? Well, 30,000 got filtered. Did any get through? Well, I don't know. Well, we have to ask our staff then, won't we? Uh, that, that, that's a harder metric to find. And, and the, you know, the, the, what would you say? The, there's the, um, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. You know, the unknown unknowns are the ones that terrify us because how do we even know what we're talking about? We don't know how bad the security is because nobody reported it. And it can, we come back to education again. Yeah, I just, I, I, no, yeah, it does come around. Yeah, our, the, our the safety net is having smart people. Yeah, right. Our, and the, you, you can debate, you know, our staff, your first or last line of defense. And the answer is, well, yes. <laughs> you know, if, if a phishing email lands in, my, in one of my staff members' inbox, well, everything to that point has failed. And now I'm depending on my staff to recognize it. So they're my last line. We could also argue they're the first line because you know, somebody came to the door or somebody picked up the phone and my staff said, no, not today, thanks, and sent them away. You know, first line of defense. So which are they? Well, both, actually. But they're only any good if we've told them. We can't expect them to just know. We're back to education. Okay. And what do you think are the best sources of that kind of education? Oh, <laughs> um, I'm really sorry. This can be a tremendously self-serving answer. Um, my personal belief is you can't be good engaging in-person training. Uh, you know, can, uh, Computer-based training is really good if I really want to know or if it's really engaging. Um, if I don't really want to know, I'm clicking through it whilst doing other work at my desk. Um, that like most computer training I've ever done. Yeah. Actually, the ones I like is, can I score the pass mark without actually having looked at the preparatory, the, the slides I'm supposed to have looked at? Right. Yeah, precisely that. You know, so I'm clicking through to the end going, Did I, can, I, can I just get the pass mark so I don't have to sit through this? Oh, thank goodness. But if it's, if it's good, if it's engaging, then I'll, I'll work with it. Or if I actually want to know, and this is kind of the win, if, I can, if, we, if we can get people to, to be interested in this stuff, well, that's fantastic. You know, so things like uh, on Netflix, there's a movie at the moment, The Great Hack. It's a documentary um, about the, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. In fact, I, I would argue it's essential watching for anyone in data protection. Uh, quite fascinating stuff. You know, it, that's brilliant because it's mainstream stuff that's getting people interested in this subject matter. So good news stories. Mm. Um, Mr. Robot on Amazon is also, Amazon Prime is also really good. First series, second, third, not so much, but the first season is really good. So you know, trying to get staff engaged in good training. Um, I... I Personally, like I say, I go out and do in-person training and I'm also in the process of putting together some online training, which you might be interested. Put the link on, go and have a look, see if it fits what you guys are looking for. That's great. Um, there, there are lots of other training options out there. So you're, and I'm happy to try and provide some alternate links so you can go for so comparisons. What, okay, well, maybe you could do that. But your online training is a new series of, of, of generic mod modules, which you think are appropriate for... Are they going to be? In, is it going to be you talking, or is it going to be? Yeah. So, so the, the um, I, I in, in our training, it's 
me presenting to camera and we have other bits popping up and explaining what's going on. Um, but it, it, we, we've built it as generic as we can because obviously you know, the cost of building something bespoke on a per company basis is prohibitive. You know, unless you're wadded and rolling in cash, you're not going to do that. So, so you kind of have to access generic stuff. So we built it to be predominantly generic whilst recognising some companies will want bespoke stuff. So I'm working with a client at the moment who their particular use case, they, 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 you know, they've had some specific phishing emails come through that they wanted to make their staff aware of. Fine, we'll take the examples of phishing emails video and we'll remake it and put in your own emails in there. Yeah, so so we, can, we can bespoke bits of it as well as building bespoke modules for given scenarios. So Interesting. if you're in this particular industry and you want a module specifically for you, that's fine. Let us know. We can build that for you. Okay. Okay. Well, look, um, Andy, that's been really, really interesting and also very edu- educational. Uh, but my final thing to you before I kind of wrap up is, so uh, someone's just been appointed DPO of a company about to go in there. What's the three th- first things they should do? Apart, apart from being a D- all the DPO general staff, first three things they should do th- with security slant. What, what do you think they should do in their first 100 days as they turn up? Okay. Um, make friends with the information security people. Um, yeah, be, be, be friends with them because it will make your job way easier. Um, ask about how permissions are being managed and when they were last reviewed and updated. And then look at your procedures for making sure that permissions are set up correctly and updated in an ongoing fashion as well. If you can do those three things, you, you, you remove a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and then, sorry. You're allowed four. I, I, give me a fourth. Look at your staff education levels. Try and get a feel for what your staff do and don't know. Um, and you know, breed a culture of openness. Again, one of the fundamental things in GDPR was it was trying to improve openness and transparency around data practice. Um, so, so breed a culture of openness and transparency within your business. Because if I'm scared to report that something's gone wrong, I'm introducing a far greater risk than owning up and dealing with it. So help your staff to feel secure in telling you about stuff that they think is wrong. It'll also help identify where there are issues in the company. If they're telling you, uh, you haven't got to go and dig it out. Okay, that's very helpful. So thank Andy, thanks very much for that. If people want to get hold of you, your contact details will be on in the show notes. But your email address is? Yeah, Andy at adlconsulting, all one word, .co.uk. Okay, Andy at adlconsulting.co.uk. It will be in the show notes plus other links. Uh, that brings us to the end of another episode of GDP, GDPR Now. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Um, forthcoming episodes are likely to be uh, the, the much-heralded uh, Cookie Software Review, which we've had to redo uh, because the recent uh, CNIL and ICO papers on that, but that should be coming along. And I've got some other ones uh, in, in train, as you can might imagine, probably also one on the recent fashion ID case. Um, if you have any questions, if you think you should be appearing uh, on this podcast, if there's any issues uh, which you would like addressed, please drop me an email at uh, msc at thisisdpo.co.uk or info at thisisdpo.co.uk. This podcast is brought to you by This Is DPO. Thank you very much for listening.